0: Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the growing COVID-19 outbreak prompts the province of Ontario to close all publicly funded schools for the next three weeks. Forces first ministers to cancel their meetings in Ottawa after the Prime Minister's wife develops flu like symptoms and the Prime Minister opts to self isolate. We'll have the latest on the response to the outbreak. On a day when concerns are raised that a US crackdown on flights from Europe could have implications for Canada. The relationship between governments and Indigenous Canadians was on the agenda for the First Minister's meeting tonight. I'll speak with Inuit leader Natan Obed about COVID-19 concerns and efforts to maintain the momentum of reconciliation. And a report from a new oversight committee of parliamentarians concludes Russia and China are a clear threat to the security of Canada but that Canadian intelligence agencies don't have a coordinated response to that threat. The chair of the special committee will join me to discuss the findings. But we begin tonight with the fast moving developments on the COVID-19 outbreak and they've now touched the activities of the highest office in the land. The Prime Minister has been in self-isolation today after his wife Sophie Grégoire developed flu-like symptoms after returning from a speaking engagement in London, England. Those symptoms have subsided we're told but she is now awaiting the results of a COVID-19 test. The Prime Minister's decision to self-isolate resulted in the postponement of tonight's planned meeting in Ottawa between the Prime Minister, Provincial Premiers and Indigenous leaders. And a meeting with First Ministers set for tomorrow will now take place over the phone. And it will focus on the collective action to limit the spread of COVID-19. All of this happening on a day when the number of COVID-19 cases in the country climbed again, the stock markets plunged again, and concerts... Uh, Professional sporting events and other large gatherings have been cancelled. Ontario has closed all publicly funded schools from March 14th to April 5th. CPAC's Martin Stringer has been following the latest developments today and he's with me now. Martin, lots to cover on the COVID-19 outbreak today, but let's start with those latest developments on the situation with the prime minister and Sophie Grégoire.
1: Well, this all developed just literally hours before the prime minister was set to start his meeting with the first ministers. The prime minister, uh, Trudeau, set out a statement saying that out of an abundance of caution, he had decided to self-isolate until Sophie Grégoire Trudeau's test results have come in. Now, ironically, almost at the same time we were hearing from the Prime Minister, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh also sent out a notice saying that he had also decided to self-isolate. He was feeling unwell, and although his doctor doesn't think his symptoms are COVID-19, Singh felt that it was better to cancel public appearances until he got better.
0: All right, the Prime Minister's absence, uh, Martin, meant the cancellation of uh, the First Minister's meeting, and what uh, were the premiers saying about that? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, probably one of the premiers who was counting the most on this meeting was Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, especially after the collapse this week of oil prices. Now, this meeting came months ago, and it was organized, much of the motivation for the organizing this meeting was to try to address Western alienation and Alberta's demands for a better deal, for example, changes to the equalization. Now, Premier Kenney was speaking here in Ottawa this morning. After learning the meeting, the First ministers uh, uh, had been cancelled. He told his audience that after seeing a draft communique being circulated by the federal government, he said his government would not have been able to sign that final communique.
2: There was no recognition of the kind of fiscal and economic crisis that we are facing uh, generally in the Canadian economy uh, or specifically in, in the Canadian energy sector. Uh, I cannot convey this strongly enough. Uh, we are at a tipping point in the Canadian energy sector which is the largest subsector of the Canadian economy and at, at, at the very least we asked the federal government to please stop doing harm you know some small things they could do right now would be to come to an equivalency agreement with us on methane regulations to remove uncertainty in that respect but how about delay that the application of that for a year companies do not have tens of millions of dollars to spend on new equipment for monitoring methane emissions right now because they don't have money to pay their employees in many cases. Like we're on the bubble here. Please at least delay the application of clean fuel standards by a year or something. Let's, talk, let's get into a process where we can talk about that. But layering on additional regulatory costs which could impose billions of dollars of costs on the Canadian energy sector right now would be like going to the Ontario auto sector in 2008 and saying, oh, by the way, we're going to force you to pay billions more in new regulations. We cannot do it right now. This is, this is it could not be more critical.
0: All right, so that was Jason Kenney today. Uh, no First Minister's meeting, no chance for him to say that uh, to uh, the Prime Minister yeah. and others gathered around the table today, but pretty sure that's the message he's going to communicate when they have their phone conference expected tomorrow. So, uh, there he is making the case about how uh, Alberta is being unfairly burdened by federal policies. Uh, and, and then on top of that, uh, the, the challenges from the COVID-19 yeah. outbreak. So what's the response from the federal government to what Jason Kenney is saying?
1: Well, with the meeting cancelled, nonetheless, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland did meet with Premier Kenney. And they did sit down and they did discuss a stimulus, a stimulus package of economic measures that Alberta is proposing and asking Ottawa to bring in. Minister Freeland said today that everything is still on the table.
3: Let me assure all Canadians, as I, sure, I assured Premier Kenny, that our government stands ready to respond to support the Canadian economy, and we do have the economic firepower to do so. Canada has a A credit rating and the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio. In the G7, the Canadian economy is strong. The government is ready and prepared to act to support our economy.
0: All right. So uh, federal government, all ears on this, Martin, but uh, I guess we'll, we'll see where where yeah. this all goes and whether they respond uh, in dollar terms yeah. uh, to Jason Kenney. One of the other big stories today we're following, of course, was uh, Donald Trump's announcement last night that the United States would put a 30-day travel ban on all flights coming from continental Europe, uh, hoping that will keep America safer from the coronavirus uh, outbreak. So what kind of that reaction was that getting uh, in the federal government today?
1: Well, there were a lot of questions raised as to how that travel ban uh, announced by President Trump might affect Canada. For example, the big question is, might we see a flood of European air passengers trying to use Canada as a back door and to get into the States through Canada? Now, the government in its answers today says that they don't think so. But the opposition also used the occasion to press the government in question period on why Canada, they say, isn't doing more to control entries into Canada.
4: Mr. Speaker, other countries around the world have started to flatten the growth curve of the coronavirus by implementing tangible decisions to stop the transmission. Uh, this Government has decided not to impose mandatory screening at airports. They have decided not to impose mandatory quarantine procedures. They have decided not to implement any limits on, traveling, uh, on a, not to implement any restrictions on travelers entering into Canada. Can the Deputy Prime Minister inform the House on what evidence
2: has the government based these decisions on. Honourable Deputy
3: Prime Minister let me start by assuring Canadians that Canada's public health system is outstanding and our public health officials are doing a terrific job on the ground. The health and safety of Canadians is our number one priority and our government is guided in all of our decisions by the advice from medical professionals and by scientists. Enhanced screening and detection processes are in place at all international airports, at land crossings and at ports. We are constantly evaluating the measures in place and the developing international situation.
0: All right. One of the things we're hearing about, Martin, is yeah. this whole idea of you know, evaluating different measures in place and all kinds of different uh, uh, governments across the country are talking about the possibility. Well, there, some of them brought in restrictions about the size of gatherings and yeah. uh, limiting uh, these large gatherings, uh, distancing, it's called, to make sure, sure. people stay apart, uh, which has people asking questions about, well, what about legislatures? What about the House of Commons where... 338 members of Parliament gather all the time and and hundreds of staff members and so on. So uh, what are we hearing about that and the possibility that legislatures may uh, move to take Mm -hmm. action?
1: Well, those questions, I mean, those questions are being asked both here on Parliament Hill and in legislatures, as you mentioned, across the country. The House of Commons is taking its recess next week for the traditional March break but the House administration and the party leaders are discussing whether or not Parliament should be temporarily adjourned because, obviously, of concerns over public safety and infection. And also, those kind of discussions are also currently going on in the Alberta and Ontario legislatures. The coronavirus has also been causing a political stir in Saskatchewan. There had been reports that Premier Scott Moe might have been considering a spring election after he made some comments in a public uh, speech that his government's mandate he felt was up. That had a lot of people crying foul or wondering whether they were facing the prospect of an election in the middle of a public health uh, crisis. Well, Premier Moe today announced uh, after several days of controversy that he would not be going to an election this spring in Saskatchewan.
0: All right. So that's the situation in in Saskatchewan. There's uh, uh, there's a conservative. Party leadership race taking place at the federal level in this country. Some updates and developments on that today as well.
1: Well, what we are seeing is it's had an impact on the federal conservative leadership campaign. The majority of Tory leadership candidates now are on the record. Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, Rick Peterson have all announced that they are temporarily suspending campaigning and public activities because of concern about the pandemic. Then there's the issue of public activities in general, and you alluded to it. Today, Quebec Premier Francois Legault announced that his government was reigning in, and banning public gatherings of more than 250 people and that includes of course the saint patrick's day parade in montreal which is a huge event of course montreal Canadiens games i mention that because they're cancelled anyway because today the nhl announced it was suspending its season at least temporarily premier legault also announced that quebec's uh, asking all people returning from any foreign trip to self-isolate for 14 days
5: right now it's under control we only have 13 cases and uh, it's under control, but the next few weeks will be very important, but also I want to tell Quebecers that it it will take months before we see the end of this uh, situation.
1: That was uh, Premier Legault. Now, he joined New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs, who yesterday had already imposed a two-week home quarantine on all New Brunswickers coming home from outside, from holidays or work outside of the country. But Ontario Premier Doug Ford, who was here in town uh, to meet with reporters for the first minister's meeting that was scrapped, uh, he was speaking with reporters. He's taking the opposite approach. When asked if he was concerned about the tens of thousands of Ontarians who will be heading south for the March break and whether they should self-quarantine when they get back, he said no.
0: It can change. It can change uh, at any day. But I just want the families and and their children to have a good time. Go away, have a good time, enjoy yourself. And uh, we're going to be monitoring the the situation as it changes every single day. But uh, I just want uh, them to enjoy themselves right now. Right, that was early this morning, then, Martin. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because what we got later in the day was schools. the provincial government uh, took uh, advice from the uh, the medical officer of health in the province of Ontario and has decided anyway yeah. to close uh, Ontario, schools. all publicly funded schools in Ontario, for two weeks after the March break exactly. next week. So event- what it effectively does is anybody who leaves and goes on the March break, travels outside of Canada, Canada is at least going to be some form of self-quarantining when they get back because their kids won't be allowed the to go children school. children
1: won't be going to school, so, so that solves half the
0: equation, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, of course, this story has been changing day yeah. by day and probably will again tomorrow for sure, so uh, we'll have more to talk about tomorrow, but thanks. You're welcome. Dr. Abdu Sharkawi is an infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network at Toronto Western Hospital. He has worked around the world, and he joins me now. Uh, Dr. Sharkawi, first of all, thanks for taking time to speak with me tonight. I appreciate it.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: We have the Prime Minister self-isolating today because his wife is being tested for the COVID-19 virus. The NHL season suspended. The NBA season suspended. Large events and gatherings being cancelled. What's your reaction to what we're seeing now?
6: Uh, I think I'm uh, I'm unsettled by it. I think like many people, uh, I'm really trying to digest and process the scope of what's happening. Uh, But at the same time, I'm really trying to reflect on things and try and understand what I think are going to be uh, sustainable measures to take and uh, hopefully constructive strategies to help cope with what has really become a fairly overwhelming situation for the public at large to try and absorb and handle.
7: As
0: you're watching this reaction, does all of what you're seeing make sense? I mean, is this the, the natural pattern of of developments and response that you would expect to see and want to see as this outbreak progresses?
6: Yeah, I think that's a difficult question to answer uh, simply because this is uh, fairly unprecedented in terms of our recent history and experience with an emerging infection. Uh, there have been comparisons drawn obviously to the SARS epidemic which occurred back in two thousand and three. Uh, I think the main distinction between SARS and this is that there was much more geographical containment to the SARS uh, virus and despite our uh, rather vivid and very disturbing memories here in Toronto and in uh, parts of of, uh, China, um, we're dealing with a completely different uh, uh, animal here, if you will. Uh, We're dealing with something that is uh, spreading uh, much more rapidly, that is involving you know, pretty much the entirety of the globe, uh, or will so uh, at some point in the not too distant future. Um, I, I think I'd be hard pressed to criticize too vehemently some of the measures that have been taken uh, in an effort to contain this virus. Uh, my fear is that if we emphasize that a little too much, though, without recognizing that the other measures that are more proactive in terms of preventing further progression further complications, further spread, uh, we're going to be in even more trouble than we think.
0: Well, I'll get into that in a moment with you. But so we, today we have the province of Ontario now ordering all publicly funded schools in the province uh, to close uh, over the next three weeks. So two weeks beyond the March break, which was going to happen next week anyway. Um, is that is that the right move? And, and what signal is that sending? I mean, I, some people might look at that and say that uh, these kinds of very... Uh, uh, you know very significant measures do they suggest that uh, that public health officials aren 't aren 't convinced that other measures will stop the slow uh, stop the spread
6: yeah, that 's a very good question and i 'm not so sure anybody has a definitive answer for that. What I will say is that i don 't think it 's unreasonable to at least try and invoke some of these measures on a trial basis to determine whether or not Uh, They will be somewhat effective. Uh, I think the March break is a unique opportunity uh, within which we can try and enlist some of these strategies, particularly in the school environment, and see if it is a worthwhile approach to take. Um, And hopefully over a period of two to three weeks, if we can uh, ramp up our testing capacity, if we can ramp up our public education strategies and hopefully get a more positive message out of empowerment to to the public at large rather than uh, one of simply greater fear, we'll maybe be in a better position to determine if some of these measures are going to be of benefit over the long term.
0: Uh, Thousands of families are weighing whether or not to travel for March break next week. Uh, What's your advice?
6: Yeah, I think uh, my advice and my attitude uh, about this uh, situation has shifted, to be quite honest. I think if you had asked me this question um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I would have uh, felt much more reassured uh, that people would not be putting themselves in harm's way uh, by seeking out travel to a Caribbean or a tropical destination. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, we are simply seeing too much spread in various parts of the globe at this point, particularly over the last week to week and a half, that it's difficult to justify any form of non-essential travel, knowing full well that you may be bringing back uh, the virus in an asymptomatic fashion, and potentially spreading it to someone else unknowingly, uh, who may be more vulnerable and susceptible to serious consequences. Yeah, I guess,
0: yeah, I guess you're, you're, you're the medical expert. Cause, cause I think, so people in the province of Ontario in particular are faced with sort of two things today. There's the, the advice from, that you're uh, suggesting. Uh, we have the Premier, Doug Ford, today. He's urging families not to cancel travel plans. Go away for March break and, and have a good time. And I guess, uh, is that, I, I mean, do people need to watch out for sort of mixed messages and, and how do they know which way to uh, go here?
6: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, uh, That's part of the the major uh, deficit or challenge in dealing with this problem, is that there is just so much messaging out there. Uh, There is uh, so much polarity, if you will, in terms of uh, overreaction versus underreaction. Uh, I would say respectfully, I would uh, ask Mr. Ford to stick to politics and leave the medical decisions and the policy making with respect to uh, the safety of the public at large when it comes to uh, communicable diseases uh, to uh, public health officials uh, people like myself and healthcare professionals
0: i mean looking ahead i guess one of the issues here is right is the cur- the concern is not just for the safety of of travelers i think you sort of touched on it but uh, for the possible impact on the health system here at home in canada uh, when they come home and the strain that it might face if they return and they're carrying that disease.
6: There's no question about it. I think at this point in time, it's prudent to take every possible uh, strategy and measure to reduce the risk of exposure and to reduce the likelihood that people will be feeling uncertain about any tickle in their throat, any sense of a symptom that seems, you know, unusual, and then flock to the nearest urgent care clinic or the emergency room. And overwhelm our capacity for caring for perhaps much sicker and much more pressing patient needs
0: and then there's the you know the fact that it's this is not uh, clearly it's a global it's a global issue uh, which means that we take decisions in this country that are consequential to uh, uh, or uh, dependent on decisions made by other countries and I guess uh, Looking to see what your thoughts might be on the fact that, you know, the United States has banned all flights from continental Europe for the next 30 days, and there's some pressure on, on Canada to consider doing the same since the Americans done it. Uh, do you have any thoughts on
6: that? Yeah, I, I think that we are not necessarily in the same situation as, uh, as the United States, um, and uh, that's not dismissing the fact that our geographical proximity suggests that obviously there's going to be a lot of cross-border travel, so, we can't dismiss uh, our uh, risk uh, altogether. However, I-, I would say that uh, we've had very different strategies and approaches in terms of how this is being uh, handled. Uh, unfortunately, in the United States, this issue has been largely politicized. There have been a number of barriers towards uh, accessibility to testing and the completeness of testing protocols that have been uh, put into place. And my fear for the Americans is that the horse is out of the proverbial barn, if you will, and there are likely countless numbers of individuals who are likely already infected and who are unable to seek testing in an appropriate time frame. In Canada, I feel while we shouldn't be entirely complacent about our situation, I do feel that the strategy has been a little bit more in terms of leaving the uh, policy making and the educational piece uh, and the testing uh, pretty much uh, the uh, uh, domain of uh, our public health system. I think they've done a very good job up to this point, uh, staying on message, uh, trying to keep people calm and providing them with some common sense advice in terms of how they should respond and what measures they need to take to keep themselves and their families
0: safe. Okay, let, let's finish on this. A uh, minute or so we have left. How do you, everybody talks about managing the curve and trying to make sure that we, we keep this, uh, the spread, if we can limit the spread uh, to, to a degree, some containment, manage that, uh, it's clearly a much shorter duration uh, for this this challenge in this country and around the world. Uh, what should we watch for next as, as this goes along? How, how will we know when we've, uh, not got it under control, but how will we know when we've got a strat- strategy that's starting to pay off?
6: I think probably the best litmus to test for that would be to see um, very little in the way of what we call local or community spread. And what I mean by that is that uh, at the beginning of this uh, pandemic, uh, almost exclusively we were seeing cases that had a direct travel link their so-called hotspots, uh, China, uh, Iran, and more notably places like Italy, obviously. Uh, when we started to see cases of local spread that clearly had no travel link, either to the person who was infected or uh, the, the, the people that they were in direct exposure with through work and school and home, etc., cetera, uh, it became a source of concern uh, that suggested that the, the virus was circulating within our community Uh, And that creates a great deal of concern around the possibility that it spread without any epidemiologic link uh, to another country. Um, If we are seeing that that uh, is being curbed um, and we're not seeing a spike of new cases, uh, you know, I think that that should be somewhat reassuring. It certainly should not lessen our vigilance whatsoever, but it should give us some degree of confidence that we're on the right track.
0: All right, always uh, good to get a a, a perspective from the professionals on this, Uh, Dr. Abdusharkawi. uh, Thanks so much for your time today. I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you very much, Peter. Well, let's bring in our panel of party commentators now on another very busy day with lots happening in the nation. Richard Mahoney is a Liberal commentator, Ashton Arsenault is a Conservative commentator, and Anne McGrath is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all. Good to see you, uh, to see you all looking well. Thank you. Uh, it's It's been a, a whirlwind kind of a time in, in Canada these days, and we have the Prime Minister self uh, isolating now with his uh, wife waiting to find out if she's uh, COVID-19 uh, positive. Richard, uh, I mean, to all of you, let's start there. Uh, what are you thinking as you watch uh, this uh, uh, this process, I guess, unfold? And, and I suppose the response to it.
5: So uh, first on the f- thinking, I mean, it is all happening so fast. Like in the course of today, uh, you know, we found out the prime minister is self-isolated. We cancellation of major sporting events. Uh, you know, school closing, school closing. Ontario. Our workplace uh, workplaces are making adjustments and getting people to work from home. So it's happening really fast. That's the first thing. Um, and um, you know, as much as I worry about our collective health, um, I also think we need to pay some attention and worry about the decisions that uh that people make we're not all making good decisions all the time people are hoarding masks and and things like that those you know panic is the enemy at a time like this um so you know you need some steady hands on the tiller uh, to do this i think fortunately canada is actually as serious as this is is in is in relatively pretty good shape Um, And I say that not as a a partisan, but first of all, uh, we have, you know, after SARS hit, we learned a lot of lessons as a country. Mm We set up the Public Health Agency of Canada, for example. Our local public health officials have a much more robust... They know what they're doing now uh, more than they did 15 years ago. And uh, so so as worrisome as it is, um, it looks to me like Canada as a whole, not just the federal government, as a whole is responding pretty robustly to this.
0: I think that's, Ashton, for for Canadians, that's that's an important part of the conversation, right, is do do they feel they're getting the kind of leadership that gives them confidence because that's, what you really need in a, in a situation like this, people need to feel like they're in good hands.
8: Yeah, I mean, extremely fluid situation. Uh, I think, you know, even as early as late last week, uh, some of us, and I'll include myself into that pile, uh, felt it was sort of being blown out of proportion, and maybe we were uh, getting a little bit panicky when perhaps we shouldn't have been. But uh, obviously, uh, I've been proven false, uh, and uh, I think, frankly, as Canadians, we should be pretty proud up to this point uh, how well our officials have responded to it, particularly as, you know, there are, are still a lot of unknowns uh, about what's going to come next, uh, how the infection will spread across provinces. And then we we'll also have to benchmark ourselves against our American counterparts. And frankly, there looks like there's some serious testing issues uh, south of the border. Uh, I'm sure that we'll do their best to rectify that as soon as they can. But mm-hmm. as of right now, uh, I,
0: I would applaud the Canadian government response. Get into more of the, the Canada-U.S. relationship in a moment. but And, and what are
9: your thoughts? I don't, I don't disagree with what's been said. Uh, However, I, I will say that, that there are a couple of lessons that I think we need to take from this. One is that uh, any cuts, cuts to healthcare are short-sighted, and they'll come back and bite you for sure. So I do worry about the stresses on the healthcare system as public funding has not been, uh, you know, keeping up. Uh, I think so. That's that's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I agree with the uh, what's been said about public health, and that's why public health is so important. And uh, like when when it, when it gets pulled back the consequences are dire. They're not, they're not dire on a daily basis, but they are in a situation like this. So I think that that's an important yeah. thing to keep our eye on. And the other thing I worry about is uh, the most vulnerable people. So uh, people, for instance, living in remote communities in the north uh, and, in, and in rural places in, in this country. And also those people who uh, can't be sure that they will still be paid if they take time off uh, because they're not feeling well. And I think that that is a risk for them financially, it's a risk for them health-wise, and it's a risk for the rest of us.
0: I mean, part of the conversation from this government, Richard, has been that, uh, you know, we had the billion dollar package announced uh, yesterday, and and this this sense that we are you know, when it comes to, to jumping in and helping, uh, you know, financially, that we're probably at the very early stages of this. Yep. Uh, are we reassured by the, the messages coming from government that basically uh, we've got everybody's back and that, that $1 billion might have been the first installment of, right. of more to come? I mean, is that, uh, you know, is that an important piece here?
5: I think it is an important piece. And I, I mean, obviously, I don't know what the federal government also announced its budget date, yes, uh, this week, um, yeah, which 30th. is March 30th. Uh, um, we'll,
0: we'll see if that holds, by the way. Uh, right. There's lots of talk yeah. about the future of Parliament sitting in these sitting days, and, all and legislatures across the, the country are thinking about shutting
5: down, at least temporarily. And so. well, we
9: had an election canceled today. Yeah, an election, election canceled and,
0: yeah.
5: Uh, yeah, But it seems to be schedule. that budget... What, whatever, I think the original plan, that budget was going to, as my understanding, was going to focus in large measure on climate change right. and climate change measures. feels to me like that um, probably can't happen now. I mean, it, they, could, they could do all the climate change measures they want. What the, the, Back to your question, the, the, the country's going to want... Uh, a focus and is going to put a focus on their uh, on response to Corona, uh, whatever the measures in the budget are. So, and and I'm, I'm speculating now, but if I was them, I would maybe delay some of those measures until we get through this, and then have a second financial statement, an update, or something. Mm. We'll see. But that, that I mean, my point is, I think people are going to look not only this week for the handling of it, of the government and the whole government approach and all that's good but they're going to look at that that right. budget to be the next step I mean session. Ashton,
0: beyond and and, and beyond the uh, you know beyond the response we've seen so far and beyond the, uh, the the narrower focus if I can put it that way on 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 health and safety issues, uh, there's the economy. The markets are crashing through the floor. Yeah. Uh, look at what's happening to to various sectors of the economy. Large gatherings are being canceled left and right. Uh, the sports sports leagues in suspension. Uh, that will have a, a significant effect on the economy as well. So. Uh, what do you think we're headed for in terms of, to Richard's point of the budget, If it's, does it have to be a massive stimulus budget to respond to what we're seeing?
8: Uh, well, it's right now, uh, as of today, the worst conditions since 2008. Uh, and what we have is a confluence of events, first and foremost, being COVID-19, secondly, an oil price war, uh, and third, just shaky investor confidence uh, at writ large. And that is coming together to create sort of this tsunami of uncertainty that is going to have to be addressed by governments, I think that there will be a significant um, stimulus package. But the, narr- to- the
0: narrative from conservatives so far has been, you know, you spent the cupboard bare, you're not ready for the tough times. Does that narrative... Uh, does that narrative fade at some point? And, and it, it, that was then, and this is now, and it doesn't matter how deep deeply in deficit the government is, it may have to go deeper Look, into Look, to, to be clear, I think
8: there's some wiser decision-making could have been made with respect to public finances over the last couple of years. But we'll have to put that aside, uh, obviously, for the greater good when we're talking about uh, an economy that's deeply sliding into recession people losing their jobs. Uh, we're going to have any number of people uh, that have a pretty serious illness that we'll have to take care of. Uh, at a certain point in the day, you're just going to have to put politics on the table and let it lie for a while.
0: Yeah,
9: There's going to have to be economic stimulus measures. Yeah. I mean, the, the people are losing their, like, as I said before, there are people who have jobs that that, that can't afford to take time off because they can't lose mm-hmm. the pay. Yeah. We're going to have people losing their jobs. So there has to be economic stimulus at a fairly significant uh, level, I believe. Like, And I think it is comparable to 2008, 2009. there 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 was a need for stimulus spending and stimulus spending makes sense in a circumstance like this interest rates are low it will create jobs it will uh, it, it will you know produce results in the healthcare system I mean there's all sorts of arguments for why this is important now but I think in all of it we have to keep our eye on jobs I think that people need to have jobs they need to be protected in those jobs and they need to know that if they have to take time off because they're not feeling well, they can do it.
0: Yeah, and a lot of this is post whenever this this event passes, right? Because it's... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking it's, it's, it's hard to generate confidence with stimulus at a time when people are in a state of panic. Like, it's not yeah. it's just because the government says we're going to lower or the Bank of Canada cuts interest rates doesn't have everybody go. Now's the time to go. I mean, there are bigger things on people's minds like, than yeah. thinking this is a good event opportunity mm-hmm. uh, to get into the market or something for a lot of people. Right?
9: Yeah, panic, panic is not a really good uh, for, for, you know, uh, decision making. I mean, we have to have evidence-based decision making. And we've seen examples of people making decisions that aren't based in evidence. Right. I would, argue things like canceling flights from Europe. Personally, I think, you know, when the when the virus is already here, uh, okay, the, let's, the issue is slowing it down. You started it.
0: Let's let's stay there. How should Canada there are lots of talk today that with Donald Trump's decision to cancel flights from Europe for the next 30 days uh, to ban them that there will be implications for Canada. We have to have tougher screening uh, to satisfy the Americans. Otherwise, the big concern is that, okay, travelers from Europe trying to get to the United States will come to Canada and then travel from Canada to the U.S. And if the Americans won't like that, uh, that sort of circumvents the ban. So what should our response
9: be? Well, I don't think that we should be closing down borders. I think that that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Like I said, it's not like you can close yourself off and and not have the virus is in Canada. Um, And so what we need to do is figure out how to slow it down, how to deal with it. It, slow it down. And I, I think in terms of uh, uh, any international work, you have to do it in, in collaboration with your international partners. But can we satisfy yeah.
0: Donald Trump that, look, uh, uh, we are not going to ban flights from Europe to match your ban of flights from Europe, and that he would be okay with that?
8: Yeah, I think so. I I don't think, uh, you know, it, we, <laughs> the president should expect that we would follow suit with respect to banning flights from European countries. I do think we can do a couple of quick things to, um, you know, satisfy those who feel as though uh, the ball might be getting dropped somewhere. Uh, for example, enhanced screening at airports, perhaps um, when passengers are getting off the plane. Investing in uh, research, so perhaps there's quicker diagnostic tools um, to uh, screen these quicker. But in terms of banning flights from European countries, I think that's a bit ridiculous, and I, I don't think you'll find too much disagreement
5: there. I agree with that, but what a great example of you, you know our previous points about uh, about panic. I mean not to be partisan about this, but but President Trump... That's that twice you've said that. I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> it's usually a it precursor like to
3: ready. say yeah, partisan. I don't want to be partisan, but
5: listen. But Trump has clearly made this thing worse for us. Um, you know, we, we probably have more cases in Canada as a result of their tardy response, his reassuring people that it was solved a month ago. The The market, you know, people who are expert on this far more than I am are saying his handling of this... Is making the market reaction to it worse, so that's going to have an economic impact on us. And here's yet another example where, he, he, without consulting any uh, governments, including Canada's, he makes a change to their travel policy, which, as you point out, is going to have an impact. People are going to are, are going to route themselves through Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Ottawa, wherever. So, uh, I mean, even when you make the right decisions, your you know other governments and your neighbor makes some wrong decisions, and you're and you're a hit. Um, So all those things, we're going to have to probably do all those things and then some. The one thing I would say is, as always, we should take the lead from public health uh, officials who know this stuff, who've experienced it, who are experts in it, Uh, as Anne said, evidence-based decision-making, rather than panic will always be the friend. Uh, The two things that I understand that they are focused on are the ones we would want them focused on, which is to slow down the spread. And to contain the actual right. number of cases, flatten the curve, yeah. right, right, yeah. because a rapid spread, even with a, a, a lesser number of cases, or you know, a relatively small number of cases, is going over to overwhelm the system.
0: system. Okay, uh, on, let's leave it on that note. I'll be, I, I suspect we'll be talking about this again. But thanks for your time tonight. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the self-isolation of the Prime Minister and his wife over COVID-19 concerns led to the indefinite postponement of the First Minister's meeting with Indigenous leaders that was supposed to play, uh, take place tonight here in Ottawa. My next guest uh, was to have been in the room for that meeting. Natan Obet is the president of the Inuit Tapirid Kanatami, representing 65,000 Inuit in communities across Canada's north. Good to see you again. Uh, thanks, thanks for coming to, in to speak with me. Uh, how did you find out the meeting was being cancelled?
4: We got an email about two minutes before... The uh, announcement was made publicly, so uh, it was a surprise to us. Like it was a surprise, I think, to everyone.
0: Right. Uh, so, and you, uh, you're, uh, I guess, you understand why, and it, yeah. it makes sense, I suppose, for gatherings like this. Was Was there any mm-hmm. discussion about the possibility of trying to do the meeting over the phone, as I think the first ministers are
4: going to try and do? From. The, the latest information that I have, there will be a National Indigenous Organization meeting with the Prime Minister by phone tomorrow. Okay. We're still in conversation about whether or not there'll be also a segment with uh, provincial and territorial premiers in addition to the uh, NIO prime minister meeting.
0: Okay, Uh, so we'll see where that goes. Now, I know the COVID-19 outbreak was going to be discussed, and Mm -hmm. what are the particular concerns you have and and you would have raised with this group, and may still, uh, but the concerns you have about the way this is evolving and and the possible threat to your communities?
4: Well, uh, there are 51 communities in Inuit Nunangat, our homeland, Mm -hmm and all of them share very similar characteristics, especially in relation to healthcare delivery. We depend heavily on service agreements with uh, care facilities in Yellowknife, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Ottawa, uh, um, also in Montreal, Mm -hmm. and St. John's. So the arrangements that we have for care uh, are essential to the overarching care that, that Inuit receive on any given day. So in the the face of a pandemic and uh, also the uh, concerns that, that any one jurisdiction might have in and of itself to serve its own population, we were going to bring up the conversation about the need to ensure that the medical access lines are not broken for Inuit in the face of southern jurisdictions. you give us a better
0: understanding of, of, of the particular challenges if you get a, an outbreak like this sweeping through a, an isolated community uh, yeah. in, in sometimes difficult conditions? What are the challenges? Uh,
4: virtually all of our goods and services, especially perishable items and food, are brought in by air. Mm-hmm. And uh, virtually all of our serious medical considerations that our patients are then flown from those isolated communities to southern centers for care. So it's not as easy as isolating communities um, based on the fact that we are remote because a lot of the care uh, that happens, happens in Southern centers. Also, we have huge challenges in relation to housing. We have 54% overcrowding in our housing in relation to 5% of the Canadian population. Mm -hmm. So the public health messaging around things like self-isolation based on exposure to something like COVID-19 those measures uh, don't necessarily work easily within our communities.
0: Right. What are some of the other priorities that you had hoped to raise and you might still get a chance to do that, certainly with the prime minister, but maybe with the premiers as
4: well? We're hoping to raise items that have a shared concern across this country. Infrastructure was the, po- the first point that we were going to raise and the necessary investments needed to ensure that the infrastructure gap is closed between Inuit and Inungat communities and the rest of Canada. Air, marine, and social basically, uh, especially in relation to housing. We also were going to talk about legislative priorities, uh, the NDRIP legislation that's been promised uh, for tabling by this Liberal government, also the implementation of what's being called C92, the Act Regarding First Nations, mm-hmm. Inuit, and Métis Children. And then we also are going to uh, talk about the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls National Inquiry and the Final Report and the Calls for Justice, and how it truly was a national inquiry, and then requires a truly national response.
0: Let me ask you a bit, uh, let's focus a little bit on, on UNDRIP, uh, United Nations uh, Resolution uh, on Rights of Indigenous People. The you know there there's some certainly some pushback in some provinces to that, and we've just gone through a tumultuous season here of blockades and yeah. and, and protests, and that might have the that might have the the effect of raising walls in provinces instead of you're, you're trying to get those walls down, have them to agree to this. So, what's your message around that? How, how do you say look at you need to push ahead with undrip, uh, even in the face of what you see in blockades and protests that maybe you don't like.
4: Well, those blockades and protests and um, challenges are really the result of 150 years of different ways of considering indigenous people's rights or not considering them at all. And then different legislation and policies that that govern indigenous peoples in vastly different ways across the country. But in the UNDRIP case, really UNDRIP is the collection of existing, human rights that indigenous peoples uh, have in the world, globally. It is, uh, UNDRIP did not create a new standard for indigenous people's rights. It just coalesced around the existing rights Mm. that indigenous people have as human beings. So to uh, couch it as a fear-based considerations for adopting UNDRIP in this country is really what essentially becomes a a fear about respecting and implementing our human rights as indigenous people.
0: The, one of the pillars of uh, of UNDRIP is, of course, the requirement for prior, a free prior and informed consent from indigenous peoples on any yeah. decisions that affect uh, development on their lands, resources on their lands. And for some, some people say, OK, that, that's a veto. How do you view it?
4: Uh, the term veto is a casual term that's used in the narrative. Uh, We look at our modern treaties, our land claim agreements, and Inuit have signed uh, modern treaties that cover over a third of Canada's land mass. And the free prior and and informed consent mechanisms exist within the provisions of these land claim agreements. So Inuit have already worked with the federal government and now with the provinces and territories in which these um, agreements uh, are uh, implemented within to uh, create certainty, to exercise our rights, and that also fall within the parameters of the United Nations Declaration.
0: Fair enough, but does it ultimately mean a veto? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's for, for most people concerned about this, or who oppose it, let's be frank. Some people flat out oppose it. The, the concern is, OK, this provides a veto over any resource development. And is that how you see it? Ultimately, is that what it does? Uh,
4: there are a number of different Supreme Court cases uh, that have already weighed in on free prior informed consent. There also are a number of different agreements that this country, uh, whether it be at the national level or the provincial or territorial level, have with specific First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. I think that we need to get away from the alarmist, uh, reductionist conversation about this. If we pursue under implementation in this country, we are. Uh, Therefore, giving indigenous peoples all the reins for everything, and that's it. Mm. At the same time, the respect for indigenous peoples' rights is at the center of all of this, and I think if that guides the conversation, this can be uh, something that falls in line with the other considerations that any project com- proponent has with any different right. uh, natural resource extraction. I mean, project. It would be
0: your view. It would be your view that you know uh, legis legislating UNDRIP and would, would in fact uh, would ultimately do away with blockades and protests as opposed to spurring more of them.
4: Absolutely. It would create certainty in the way in which proponents and jurisdictions consider the, um, the landscape on any particular project. And ultimately, it also would get indigenous peoples uh, closer to participating and having a shared responsibility in resource extraction in this country.
0: Well, you've been able to make your points to us. And I know there are points you wanted to make uh, with the first ministers. Again, you may still get a chance, but uh, there's always a lot of fanfare around these meetings and the fact this one's not going ahead. Uh, I know in the past you've suggested they don't always produce results anyway. So uh, what's what exactly has been lost by not being able to have this
4: meeting? Well, the ability to have a conversation and to be able to present the Inuit position on this uh, on the the issues that we were going to discuss. No matter what having conversations is important. Some of the challenges in these meetings have been that people just talk past one another. It ends up that um, leadership talks about how great uh, the things that they're doing in their jurisdiction for uh, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. And on the indigenous side, there's uh, the ability to speak directly to premiers and the prime minister about the ongoing challenges that we have. I'd love for these meetings to uh, evolve and so that we create shared priority areas and then pledge to work together to implement different uh, interventions on shared priority areas. I know we're a long ways away from that, but that still is my hope. Uh, and I was going to bring that up today in the meeting. Yeah.
0: That's never, never a bad idea to keep talking, I guess. Absolutely. Nathan bad. thanks for your time.
4: Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.
0: An all-party committee of parliamentarians is calling on the federal government to create a comprehensive strategy to combat foreign interference. The National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians was given unprecedented access to Canada's intelligence agencies and it found that foreign interference is a significant and growing risk in this country, but Canada's ability to deal with it is limited by a lack of coordinated approaches to dealing with the problem. Liberal MP David McGinney is the chair of the committee and he's with me now. Mr. McGinney, good to see you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming to speak with me. that there is ample evidence that Canada is the target of significant and sustained foreign interference activities from China and Russia and other states. Let's start there. Which other states? I mean, people hear a lot about China and Russia.
7: Who else are we talking about? I'm going to disappoint you because I'm not in a position to tell you which other states. Um, Canadians should know that our reports uh, go into the prime minister in an unredacted form, Peter, and then it goes through a redaction process. And different information is uh, removed for different reasons, but it is almost entirely related to the level of classified information behind those uh, conclusions. Okay,
0: so we, elaborate on that if you can. I'm not, I, don't, I know you can maybe not elaborate, but give me a, so Canadians will wonder. Okay, what does that mean? Are there are there trade considerations? Are there what goes into goes into the prime minister unredacted comes out redacted? What's the concern?
7: Well, the concern is uh, obviously. Uh, we interface with the um, security and intelligence community. We have access, not quite unfettered access, but a lot of access to a lot of classified information. So we've got to be very careful about what is made public, what is not made public. Our act that creates us uh, sets out the screen, so to speak, the four different things that we can be, we can have information redacted about. Uh, so what you have in this report is a, an unredacted version where we try to still communicate to Canadians, in this case, uh, on two fronts, the risk, the threat of foreign interference, and the government's response to that foreign interference. This is the first time ever that a, a body is able to access the information and assess the government, government's overall response. Okay, I want to come to that response, but I think it's important.
0: Let's lay a little groundwork so Canadians understand, okay... Uh, you know, you want, to, you want to know what response is required when you get a feeling for how significant the issue is. So, okay, let's deal with China and Russia, and, and presumably the others, uh, I'm guessing, operate in a lot of the same ways. So who, who are they targeting, and, and how do they
7: do it? So the report is really clear. On the half of the review is a clear description of what this threat looks like, what are different foreign uh, actors doing, So what are they doing when it comes, for example, to ethnocultural communities in Canada? These are often, we found in the report, targeted communities. Folks who are the subject of external efforts to try and manipulate what they're doing, what they're saying. Uh, It may involve, for example, pressure on their families back in another country. So the ethnocultural targeting of, of Canadian citizens happens, and it's happening today. Um, s- similarly, there are efforts on university and college campuses to uh, have, a, have a bearing on the kind of debate that takes place. Mm. The way in which a foreign state is portrayed. Portrayed.
0: Yeah. Uh, so what, uh, tell, me, tell me more. What, what's the objective? Uh, the
7: objective is ultimately the survival of that foreign interfering state actor. Um, it's about trying to, um, in some cases, um, maintain uh, power, authority, brand global brand sometimes it's about uh, as we saw in the case of russia with respect to the american election a lot of the american information which is also part and parcel of this report indicates that it was very much about undermining democracy and undermining liberal democratic traditions so there are different reasons motivating um foreign interfering state actors but it's a question of, of breaking it down, as we have in the report. I mentioned academia. The media right. is another area, a target area. Traditional media and foreign language media. Um, we're yeah. seeing uh, the rise of different cultural uh, groups on campuses. School boards are being approached by certain countries to be able to uh, influence the way in which uh, a country is seen. OK.
0: Uh, w- any evidence of, that elected officials are being targeted?
7: Uh, We do talk about um, the whole question of electoral integrity, but this report didn't focus on electoral um, interference per se, Mm -hmm. nor cyber interference per se, because there are other groups doing fabulous work in this regard. We do explain what's what's happening on both those fronts, but um, that's just not a question I can answer right now. uh, Okay, so
0: tell me then, so, okay, now we have a better idea of the threat. Um, And what your report concludes is that... uh, everybody's all of our security agencies are are going at it in kind of different ways and there's sort of no if i'm reading it correctly sort of no Mm. overarching coordinated response to deal with these threats
7: have i got it right you've got it right we're saying that there are different initiatives happening across the federal family we've looked at all the different actors what are they doing and we pointed out a couple of areas where we need to make progress we need to make progress inside our federal government we need to make progress interdepartmentally We need to make progress when it comes to our federal government working with other orders of government like the province and cities. Here's an example. Um, If CSIS is uh, of the view that it would like to share information with a local police force Mm -hmm. in Toronto, for example, on a particular threat landscape, it can't do that because the police on the front lines don't have the necessary security clearance. So they can't share the information that's important. Uh, we, lay, we lay out these kinds of so,
0: impediments. So what would so yeah. happen in that case of that threat then? If they're so, unable to communicate to the local well, police sir, force, this might be happening.
7: Obviously, uh, an unclassified briefing could take place. So This is the kind of activity that does take place from time to time. But the, what we've really tried to paint here is where are the key stumbling blocks to improvement so we can actually, as a country, respond better to this reality, this significant and sustained foreign Interference activities.
0: Were you surprised to find what you found? I mean, uh, the threats coming from China and Russia—that's that's that's not exactly new. Uh, You'd think by now uh, we would have a, you know, a well-oiled machine of coordinated security agencies in this country that know exactly what to do and how.
7: Peter, I think the committee believes that the the situation is capable of improvement. It always is, but now in particular, we've identified where improvement can take place. And one of the models we pointed to is Australia. Australia only recently created a whole new counter-interference strategy and has created a new national counter foreign interference coordinator and a task force and just in december of 2019 peter they funded it to the tune of 90 million canadian dollars for a single task force just to deal with foreign interference mm-hmm. so we think that's a model worth examining in greater detail but we definitely need more centralization and we need more coordination
0: uh, a couple of other issues i want to deal with in the time we have left uh, you also found failings in in both efforts Uh, in in efforts to both increase diversity in security agencies and uh, on on the
7: inclusion front. What did you find? We found that um, there are, again, there are um, approaches being taken to diversity and inclusion which just don't seem to be working. Um, The community is divided into different organizations, so measuring and and evaluating what's happening between them is difficult. Mm -hmm. Those metrics aren't in place. Secondly, we found that so much of this is relegated to the Human Resources Department. Just get HR to look after right. this. We now know that we need senior management to be engaged. Why do we do this? Because we know from studies in Canada, from the performance of uh, security and intelligence organizations around the world, the CIA has written about this, Harvard Business School has written about this, Australia, et cetera, CSIS. We know there's a connection between working to improve the performance of these organizations and diversity and inclusion. And, of course, most Canadians right now remember either the RCMP or they remember d and and these lawsuits that have taken place and the settlements and the class action lawsuits. That set us back a little bit, but the reality is uh, we need to up our game when it comes to getting the best talent that we've got in Canada to help us.
0: Let's talk about, you mentioned DND. You did a special report on the collection of information on Canadians by the Defense Department. You found that DND activities may not be in in compliance with the Privacy Act. Uh, How so?
7: Because um, DND tells us they're not sure if they're bound by the Privacy Act. Um, And we say, okay, um, we need to hear more about this. But one of the things, one of the tripwires in our legislation that creates us, Peter, is when we come across anything that indicates that an organization in the security and intelligence field may not be in compliance with the law, we have a statutory obligation. We have to send this directly now, to the attorney general.
0: Now, now, to be clear, is this, this the collection of evidence uh, in Canada, or is this collection of evidence overseas? Uh, overseas, okay. Overseas, but still, uh, what's the the argument is that okay because it's overseas, we're we're not subject to the act. Well, or, again, we're not subject to the act. Well, at all?
7: the report the report lays it out pretty nicely for Canadians to understand. Uh, we are we're hopeful. The we, again, we don't uh, tell the attorney general what to do, but we sent this matter to uh, to him for his attention. And I'm sure he'll take the appropriate legal steps.
0: All right, David McGinney, a good to uh, have you come in and speak about this. Thank you so much. Good to see you and appreciate take care. it. That is all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the Cable Public Affairs Channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.